public speaker, you need to be able to think quickly on your feet, and you've got to be able to turn any situation that arises to your advantage. And well, the, the great evangelist D.L. Moody definitely was able to do both of those things, and if you know anything about him, you know uh, that he traveled around the country preaching and, and holding revival meetings, and in spite of his great success for the Lord, he was also uh, regularly faced with hecklers uh, who were in violent disagreement with him. And this one particular evening, as he was about to enter the pulpit, an usher uh, handed the famous preacher a note, a note that he thought was an announcement. So he quieted the, the large audience and prepared to read it. But as he unfolded the, the paper, he found scrawled across it in large print just one single word, fool, fool. But not the least put off, Moody said brightly, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I've just been handed a, a memo which contains the single word fool, and it's unusual. He said, I have often heard of folks who have written letters and then forgotten to sign their names. But this is the first time. This is the first time I have ever heard of anyone signing their name and then forgetting to write the letter. And, and so, with his quick wit, Moody made a fool of the fool who called him a fool and had a bit of fun doing it. But as we're about to see today in our text, which comes to us from Psalm chapter 14, uh, which, by the way, for those of you that are joining us, uh, we're taking an extended look through the book of Psalms, so you know what we're going to be talking about for the next, what, year and a half or two. Um, but it contains a similar type of situation and a picture of something just as foolish but far more serious. It's the picture of the foolishness of humanity when it refuses to acknowledge the holiness of God and the sovereignty of of Almighty God. And so we're going to be looking at that in Psalm 14. And again, I encourage you uh, to bring your Bibles and read along in your Bibles uh, and not just read on the screen, but follow along Psalm 14, which superscription reads to the choir master of David. And the psalmist writes, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any are any who understand, any who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. They have no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. There they are, in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. And so David, uh, the psalm singer here, must have thought that the opening lines of today's text were pretty significant because Psalm 14 isn't the only psalm that begins with the words, the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. Because they're repeated nearly verbatim in Psalm 53. And then in the providence of God, the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to use them a third time in his letter to the Romans, a letter that is probably the most theologically significant letter to ever come from the pen of the Apostle. So, so clearly these words from God demand our keenest attention, right? And David begins his refrain by telling us the fool says in his heart, the fool says in his heart. And when he says that, his meaning here is that this is what this person really believes in the core of their being. 
And you know, when David calls out the fool, he's not talking about their intelligence. This is not an issue of education. It's not a matter of social instruction, but a morality and of devotion to God. And he says it's not just an individual or an isolated problem. Instead, he says of humanity that they have all turned aside. Together, they become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And what David is talking about here uh, is kind of the natural state of humanity, the default starting point of all the sons and daughters of Adam. And that is the fact that because Adam sinned, we are all sinners and born haters of God. Now, understandably, we don't like to think about that, do we? British uh, journalist and media personality Malcolm Muggeridge famously said, the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable fact and at the same time the most intellectually resisted. Let that sink in for just a second. The depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable fact and at the same time the most intellectually resisted. Uh, In other words, it's pretty easy to look at the world around us and see the world is living in sin, but nobody wants to admit it especially ourselves, right? Uh, Because the truth is that none of us, including me, maybe especially me, ever wants to admit how willful and sinful and self-centered we actually are. And and so we oftentimes dress up our rebellion in the garb of middle-class niceties and and good manners. But you know what the truth is? It's all just a veneer. It's just for show, just for other people to see. Kind of like the people that our Lord referred to in Matthew chapter 23, as he was traveling through Bethany. And if you remember the story, he was on his way to Jerusalem traveling uh, with his men and with the large band of people that were uh, going to attend the festival of the Passover. And remember also by Jewish law to make sure that these festival pilgrims didn't contract any ritual uncleanness and basically disqualify their trip by unwittingly encountering a grave when they were walking through the fields, it was ordered that all such tombs should be whitewashed a full month before Passover started. And so our Lord Jesus, making reference to what he saw going on around him, said in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. And so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So do you see how, how we look from God's perspective? Uh, he says we're walking around all made up on the outside, but from his point of view, he says we're really just a walking corpse. Uh, we might think we look good, but the truth is we're really just dead. And it's only after God helps us to understand that truth that all the other areas of life start to fall right into place. And that happens when we become delivered from the lies that we habitually tell ourselves, from the the lie that says we're all just basically good people, people just trying to do good things and live a good life and focus on our achievements, because the truth is, in the final analysis, it's not about us. It's not about us. The gospel, the good news, always originates with God and not within me. It starts with God's nature and not mine. Because, brothers and sisters, God alone is holy. God alone is just. God alone is righteous. And that's a good thing. It would be a terrifying thing if this universe and this reality had been created by an evil God. An omnipotent being that was morally corrupt would be a living nightmare. So it's good that God is holy. 
And it's good that God is just. But it also makes a great big problem for us. Because if God is just, what does he do with us? Right? If God is just, what does he do with me? Because the Bible says we have all sinned against God. We've all sinned against one another. We've all sinned against nature. And everything around us calls for our condemnation before a God who is not just good, but holy. And not just holy, but just. And the only thing that can bridge that huge chasm between those two extremes, between God and me, is found in Jesus Christ. And found in his death on the cross. Because that's where we see most fully the unique revelation of the fullness of God's divine nature. That's where we see that God is just, so he has to condemn our sins. But on the other hand, God is love, so he becomes a man. A man in the person of Jesus who lives a perfect, sinless life and goes to the cross where all of the justice and the wrath of God that I deserve was thrown down on him instead for my redemption. And so that our our hearts and minds could be open to actually hear from God. Uh, And this is really where the Apostle Paul kind of picks up David's inspired words and kind of completely fills them out when he writes in Romans chapter 3. He writes, what then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And and this is where Paul really kind of expands on the idea. He says, speaking of humanity, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouths are full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. And anybody who just kind of parenthetically watched on television the, uh, the hearings that went on this past week are absolutely proof of that. The Apostle Paul here is describing the concept of original sin and and what Reformed theologians call the doctrine of total depravity. The doctrine that human nature is thoroughly corrupt and sinful as a result of the fall and that men and women can do nothing to bring about their own salvation. Now, Now, honestly, because the name total depravity can cause people to get the wrong idea about what's meant, some people prefer the term total inability, moral incapacity... But what's important is not the name that we assign to the doctrine, but how accurately it describes what the Bible teaches about the spiritual condition of fallen humanity and about the origin and the seriousness of sin and about the fact that it penetrates to the very core of our being so that everything within us is tainted by it. Isaiah 64, 6 tells us that. It writes, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. So do you see the distinction here Uh, and how radically it differs from the message of the world? When the word of God tells us all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before a holy God. You see, the message of the world is that we're all basically good people who just occasionally do bad things, but that's not the message of Scripture. And both Paul and Isaiah and David are saying as Dr. R.C. Sproul summarized so succinctly. He said, we are not sinners because we sin. 
He said we sin because we're sinners. You see? We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. And by now, you're probably, some of you may be saying to yourself, Pastor, that's not what I really came to hear today. Uh, I didn't come today to let you make me feel worse about myself than I already do. Uh, or let you make me feel like a failure or a sinner and put me on a great big guilt trip. I mean, come on, of course, we all fail. Nobody's perfect, right? I mean, after all, we're only human. And besides those old moral principles that the Bible talks about are, are dated and they're restrictive, they're just a product of a worn-out Protestant work ethic and the remnants of puritanical Victorian mores. So stop living in the ethical dark ages, would you? But you know, the issue of sin is important, and let me tell you why. For one thing, it's the truth. And I don't know about you, but in my opinion, I think it's always important to know the truth. But secondly, it sets a backdrop for just how amazing God's mercy really is. And I'll give you a quick example that might illustrate that. When Vicki and I were first getting engaged, and I only had to ask her three times before she said yes. <laughs> and then I think she fell and hit her head right before that. But anyway, when Vicki and I were getting engaged and beginning to look around for a ring, the first thing the jeweler would do when they, they bring a, a, you know, a tray of diamonds out of the case was to pick one up and to place it in the center of a piece of jet black velvet cloth. Right? Now, the cloth itself doesn't make any material change to the atomic structure of the, the diamond or to its physical properties. It doesn't change it one bit. But what it does do is to set it against a background that allows the beauty and the clarity and the contours of the diamonds to be most clearly visible. And the same thing is true when we explore the constituent nature of humanity against the perfect righteousness and the relentless love of Almighty God. I mean, think about it like this. Uh, we haven't, haven't sung in a while, but think about the hymn Amazing Grace that you know, the, the chapel bells play before we start. Right? There's nothing particularly amazing about grace unless there's some really bad news from which it saves us. That's the point John Newton was trying to make when he wrote the hymn. It was a recognition that God owes us nothing but has saved us by His grace and nothing else. That's his point. I, I once was lost, but now I'm found. And we can say that because left to our own, we would never, ever find a place of refuge without the active work of God to bring us here. Amen. A work that's been God's plan right from the beginning. Uh, you know, and our Lord Jesus says as much to Nicodemus when he came to see him uh, on that secret nighttime visit. I know you remember the story, John chapter 3. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? 
Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? So now in Jesus' message here, uh, you know, he could have used any illustration. He could have picked out any illustration in heaven or on earth to compare with the gift of salvation. But he picked the illustration of being born. So I have a question for you. How, how many here, by a show of hands, had anything to do at all with their physical birth? Anybody? Did you, uh, you set up a meeting with your prospective parents and iron out the details and choose where and, and when to show up? Of course you didn't. Right? You just woke up one day and you were here. You existed. You were brought into being by the God-given miracle of procreation without having a clue, at least for a while, how you got here. And the same is true for our rebirth into the kingdom. That's, that's the whole point of why Jesus says the wind blows wherever it wishes and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Because brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit works and we see the results, but God determines the where and the when. But you know what, even more remarkable than that, I think, is Jesus' rebuke of Nicodemus when he says, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Uh, he's saying, that, how come it is you don't already know that? Right? Why don't you already know about this? And, and you know, we know our Lord well enough to know that he never asked a question without a purpose, right? I mean, he wasn't trying to trip up Nicodemus. He wasn't trying just to make him look foolish. Jesus was asking him to make him think. To think about the scriptures that he claimed to already know, one of which should have been Ezekiel chapter 36 that sets this record straight. This is what Ezekiel received from the Lord. He says, Thus says the Lord God, It's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. My holy name which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And then he says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Then, then, you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that are not good. And you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It's not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confused and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities. And you know, I think I, I counted there like at least eight times. I'm not super good with math because you know this, there's three kinds of people that do math, right? Those that are good at it and those that aren't. So, just let, think about that for a minute, right? <laughs> but anyway, so you, you correct me on my count, but I think, okay, let's say seven, eight, I wills. I will gather you. I will sprinkle you with clean water. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. And he emphasizes that because the work of salvation is the work of God and not of man. That's why Ephesians 2 says to believers, and you were, us, believers, were dead in our trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. 
among who we all, all of us, once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind that were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead. And what can a dead person do? Nothing. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming age, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And this is where Paul really seals it. He says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And what? This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know, that's exactly what David longed for in today's text. It's what he looked for when he said, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. All that salvation would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. And he's looking for the salvation that God had prepared beforehand. And it wasn't just for David. It's for all of us to walk in. And we know who that salvation is, right? It's our Yeshua. It's our Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus, who is the only answer to the problem of sin. The problem that every man woman and child struggles with from the moment they appear on this planet and that answer in Jesus is a powerful answer but it's also a narrow one it's a singular one it's an answer that could only come out of Zion a salvation that would only come from heaven in the person and the work of Jesus Christ dying for our sins on the cross and being raised from the dead for our justification and who is right now at this very moment sitting on the right hand of the throne of God praying for me And if you're in Christ, he's praying for you too. And all of that, doing all of that, what mankind could not and honestly would not do for himself, but what God did for humanity in the God-man Jesus Christ, bringing redemption out of Zion. And you know, just in in closing, I mentioned to you guys uh, Amazing Grace a little earlier and its author, John Newton, but you know, that was far from the only hymn that he wrote. Uh, he also wrote one whose, whose lyrics you may probably recognize. Uh, he wrote, Glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion city of our God. He whose word cannot be broken formed thee for his own abode. On the rock of ages founded, what can shake thy sure repose? With salvation's wall surrounded, thou mayst smile at all thy foes. Right, smile at our foes, our foes of sin and foes of doubt and of grief and of foolishness as God saves in his strength and we respond with joy and gladness. Joy and gladness that compares, compels us to share the good news of the gospel with other people. To share that salvation that comes out of Zion knowing with confidence that God will work and that his word will go out and he's promised it will never return to him void because he will add daily to his people those who are being saved. Amen? Let's pray together.